Um, as most of you know, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for some time now. We'll be there again this morning in chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and, and open it to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, if you don't have one, the scriptures that will be read for the message will be on the screen. You can follow along there. But we've been seeing throughout this letter that the Corinthian church is being called to be countercultural in their world, and we are called to do the same, to be countercultural, because ultimately God's kingdom is not of this world, um, but we are people of the kingdom in the world. And so how do we live in a countercultural way? And in chapter 15, there's quite a bit written about the resurrection, which is a blessing for our benefit. So we're going to um, pick up in verse 12. Um, we covered the first section there last week. It will be in verses 12 through 34 this week. Um, the scripture can be painful to our souls, but it should be a joy to our souls as well as we delight in, in his word. And so I hope that it is always that to you, and I hope it is that way this morning as well. But let's, let's read the scripture together. I'll, I'll read and you follow along, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he, is, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this 
to your shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. We thank you for the preaching of your word that you have commanded and established, Lord, that that through it you bring about faith, Lord, as we hear your word and respond in faith. And Lord, we pray that this morning that you would simply open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to your word, Lord, that we would be receptive of it, that your spirit would work to apply it to our minds and hearts to transform us more into the image of Christ, that we would glorify you in this world and be a part of your kingdom coming to be established on this earth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the moment very distinctly. Um, it, was a, it was a moment that um, maybe perhaps in some ways changed the tra- trajectory of my life. And the moment was that um, I opened an envelope that had test scores in it. And um, these, depending on how I did on, on these test scores, depending, depended on how much scholarship money, if any, that I could get to, um, to university. And by, by God's grace, somehow, I'm not very smart, um, but I, I got good enough scores um, to, to receive some scholarship money. It was really important and valuable for me and my family. Um, grew up with enough, but not necessarily a lot of means in terms of putting towards, towards college. So it was, it was really, really beneficial. And the Lord brought to mind that illustration as it relates to our message today. Because, as Tim Keller has said in one of his books, what we believe about the future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. And it was certainly the case for me back in that time, that what I believed about my future, the hope that I had in terms of um, being able to go to college and stuff, really did um, really change how I experienced the present. And I was, as I was remembering this story, it did a did really affect how I um, experienced the present because um, I guess I was really on cloud nine after I opened these, um, you know, this envelope with test scores, and um, it was on a Wednesday, and I was going to go to to church uh, midweek youth gathering at church, and I I absentmindedly backed my car into my stepdad's truck behind me, so. Anyways, what I believed about the future really did affect how I experienced the present in that moment. Um, The situation turned out okay. did a lot more damage to to my car than to his truck. It didn't really do anything. Um, But the point is, we are irreducibly hope-based creatures. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. And um, Keller also gives this illustration, which I think is really helpful. He says, imagine you have two women of the same age the same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. You hire both of them, and you say to each, you're a part of an assembly line, and I want you to put this part into this part, and then hand that to the person down the line. And I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. You then put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day, And it's very difficult, tedious, not the most exciting work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30,000. 
And you tell the second woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? The second woman will say, no, this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's going on here in this story? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? It is the expectation of their future. And again, Keller would go on to say, what we believe about the future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. In our passage today, Paul is continuing to address the fact that many in the church at Corinth somehow don't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And this is a big deal, and Paul goes to great lengths to communicate that to them. Essentially, if there is no bodily resurrection, Christ was not raised. So there is no gospel, no good news. Christ needed to die on the cross for our sins to take the wrath of God, but he also needed to be raised for us to be vindicated, for us to be made right with God. So there is no gospel if there is no bodily resurrection. We have no salvation, nor even the hope of salvation. And that opening illustration of the two different ladies, I think, powerfully shows just how much we are indeed hope-based creatures. And God designed us this way because, as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in the human heart. Although this was God's design, we don't often live this way, nor did the Corinthians. Because of the Corinthians' doubt of the resurrection, they struggled with hopelessness, defeat, and lack of purpose. We also struggle with hopelessness, defeat, and lack of purpose. And Because of how Paul addresses the, the Corinthians, our passage shows that denial of the resurrection leads to hopelessness, defeat, and lack of purpose. This can either be because of a willful denial of the resurrection. Maybe you've never turned to Christ in faith, and so that's a denial of the resurrection. Or sometimes, as believers, we have placed initial saving faith in Christ. We've believed in the resurrection, but in the day-to-day struggle of faith, we lose sight of the truth and application of his resurrection to our lives. Paul wrote of the resurrection to change the Corinthians' Hopelessness, defeat, and lack of purpose. And we are challenged in the same way today by the resurrection. And in our passage today, we'll see that because Christ is risen, we are to live in expectant hope, complete victory, and purposeful holiness. Because Christ is risen, we're to to live in expectant hope, complete victory, and purposeful holiness. So as we turn back to the passage, we see that that first point, that because Christ is risen, we are to live in expectant hope. In this first section of of our passage, Paul confronts the Corinthians with a series of negative if-then statements. For instance, verse 13 says, "Um, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul is, what Paul is aiming at in this chapter is, again, the bodily, bodily resurrection of the dead. That means that after we die, we will have a body. Since we will still be the same person, our current body and our future body will be recognizable, I think, to each other. 
but I don't think that you can say even that they are similar to the one that we have now, because in Christ we'll have a glorified body, no longer subject to, to pain, no longer subject to sickness or death. Our bodies will be able to be touched, just as Jesus' body was able to be touched after his resurrection. And next week, the bodily resurrection will probably be explained in much more detail. It's much more focused in that passage, but I think um, all this kind of ties together in 1 Corinthians 15, so we need to understand a little bit of that for our passage today. But in this passage today, he is focusing again on the resurrection of the dead and that Christ has raised. So through these if-then statements, an overwhelmingly depressing picture is painted. We need to understand the total hopelessness of no resurrection. We need to understand that reality. Even if we believe in the resurrection, we need to understand the hopelessness of no resurrection. And that's the picture that Paul paints for us in this passage. That's what the passage explicitly says through these if-then statements. If Christ is not raised, there's no hope. But it's interesting that with this passage, you can also flip those statements to say, if Christ has been raised, then what? Then we have a glorious hope. And so this, the, this first part of the passage really paints two stark contrasts. If no resurrection, but then you could say, what if there is a resurrection? What if Christ has been raised? So, for instance, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So to flip that, but if there is a resurrection of the dead, it is possible that Christ was raised. Verse 14, another if-then statement. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Flip that around. Or before I flip that around, um, if that's the case, then I should leave the pulpit now, right? Um, If preaching is in vain, I shouldn't be up here. So obviously, I believe, and hopefully you believe, because you hear that preaching is not in vain because Christ has been raised. But if Christ has... um, But God can use preaching to produce faith. So our faith is not in vain. It actually does unite us to the saving person and work of Christ. Verse 15, if, if no resurrection, then we are misrepresenting God. So we would be lying and inconsistent. But if raised, we have the peaceful joy of consistency and truth. Verse 17, if there is no resurrection of Christ, then our faith is futile. It accomplishes nothing if Christ has not been raised. And we are indeed still in our sins. But if Christ has been raised, our faith is not futile. Our faith is not futile. Our sins are forgiven, and we are reconciled to God. Paul brings all these points to summary in saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It seems that the Corinthians may not have fully understood that If the dead are not raised at all, then Christ is not raised. If there is no resurrection of the dead, that would also include Christ, which would mean no salvation. Paul is helping them understand the full implications of denying a bodily resurrection of the dead. Um, To give a maybe brief illustration, helping them understand the fine print on the credit card offer. Sometimes we don't understand the implications or where things are going. 
and he's helping them do that. If there is no resurrection, Christ is not resurrected. Therefore, since our hope would be for this life only, we would be of all people the most to be pitied. And again, all these if-then statements paint a very bleak picture, a picture of despair and of hopelessness. But, as I said, all those if-then statements, I think, can be flipped as well. If, on the other hand, if Christ is risen, our hope is not only for this life. And we are, of all people, I think, most to be envied in the world. Because our hope is not only for this life, but it's for the life to come. And even if you have that hope, you need to understand that you live largely among a people whose hope is only for this life. And even if they're not confronted with that on a daily basis because it's out in the future, one day they will be. And they still probably struggle on a day-to-day basis with a lot of those uncertainties and questions. So we have a hope. The resurrection of Christ is our hope. So we see the stark contrast You could say no, the word N-O, no resurrection, no hope. K-N-O, no. If you know the resurrection, the reality for you, because of your faith in Christ, then you know hope. As Christians, our hope should stand out incredibly amidst a hopeless, broken, and dark world. But it doesn't always. And when it doesn't, it often has much to do with a willful or conscious disbelief in the resurrection. Um, Yesterday, our family was able to attend a wedding ceremony, which is always a joyous occasion. A former student of ours from uh, Hinkson, where we worked at a school in Moscow, was getting married, and it was really just a joy to be there and to worship with them and reconnect with their family a little bit. But at a wedding, we often emphasize the, the steadfast love, right, present, and how it illustrates Christ's love for his people, the church. And those are significant, and they can't be overlooked But it also occurred to me that maybe we overlook the hope element present. Their expressions of joy, anticipation, and excitement were full of hope. Hope of intimacy, of consummation, and lifelong commitment. Hope of friendship, family, and adventure. Just as the husband or wife stands at the altar, abundantly hopeful for what lies ahead, so we are to be abundantly hopeful for our resurrection when Christ will fully be, fully and completely united to us, his bride, his church. So I ask you today, where is your hope? Maybe today the idea of having such a glorious, undiminished hope seems completely impossible. Maybe you've been disappointed so much that to live in true hope each day seems impossible. But we have to remember that nothing is impossible with God. He's displayed this time and again, throughout history, and most of all, through the resurrection. If you feel you have every reason to not be hopeful, just one reason to be hopeful can overcome all those reasons. And that's that Christ is risen. So do you believe that today? Do you believe that Christ is risen? Of course, whether you believe it or not doesn't make it true. It's objectively true. It happened in history, and he appeared to more than 500 It's important to say that in today's society because we often, um, our culture would often say that when you believe something that makes it true, what's true for you is 
true for you, what's true for me is true for me. That's not the case. The resurrection is objectively true. He appeared to more than 500. But for you to receive any benefit from the resurrection, you must believe it by faith. Um, Consider this simple illustration. It's an objective fact that getting good sleep, exercise, and a healthy diet results in health. But if you don't believe that, it won't do you any good, will it? You have to believe it. As a Christian, our hope should be in the resurrection. But what does that mean? It begins, I think, with an understanding of who God is. If who we understand God to be is not that magnificent or glorious to us, if he's just like another human being, the resurrection won't mean that much to us. It won't mean that much to be with him forever. But if we begin to understand him, how the Bible displays him to be, then the resurrection will mean something very, very, very significant to us. He is holy, loving, just, wise, righteous. He's the creator and sustainer of life. He is infinite. He is glorious beyond our understanding. He's perfect in every way and satisfies all our deepest longings. When we are resurrected, we will be with him forever. And in the resurrection, we'll experience no more pain or suffering. All that is to come for us in Christ All that is what is to come for us in Christ. But our hope is so challenged indeed. So many things compete for our hope in this world. And it is so easy for us to, I would say, prostitute our hope to many things. And what we give our hope to, we give our hearts to, and then we give our lives to. So I would ask, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Is it in your next vacation? There's some magnificent places to go, um, but it can't be there. All those places are still under the fall. There's still sin there. And guess what? When you get back from vacation, back to work. Um, maybe, maybe your hope is in your health. I think this coronavirus scare shows us that um, for, for many people, whether us or someone else, um, there's a lot of hope attached to our health. But we're all going to die, whether it's 60 years from now or tomorrow. We'll all die physically. And even even things that would increase our health or prolong our health, our ultimate hope can't be there either. Things like essential oils or various other things that that may be good to to some degree, they won't prevent death. We're still going to die. Maybe your hope is in your kids. Well, they're going to disappoint you. And your spouse will disappoint you as well. I think that um, for us in our marriage, that we kind of realized that, you know, a year or two in, like we were in some ways looking to each other for too much um, fulfillment in some ways. We were looking to each other for some ways that we should be fulfilled that we should only look to God towards. And we have to be careful in our human relationships of that, even a great, a great marriage won't satisfy our, our deepest longings. Maybe our hope is in stability or financial security or significance to that. Perhaps you're afraid to make a career change because your hope is in what you have now, that stability, security, significance. Or maybe you're going through too many job changes because you're hoping for what you don't have Maybe it's friendships and acceptance by others. And if, particularly if you're school age, I know that um, this one can be especially tough. We can all struggle with that to some degree, but I think it's especially difficult when we're younger. 
And what does Facebook or social media usage say about our hope? Um, I think there are often correlations. If the vast majority of your posts have to do with politics, there's probably some correlation with where you have your hope. If the majority of your posts are about food, fitness, vacation, sickness, sickness and, or health, sports, something else, again, there's likely a correlation to your post. So what does it say about your hope? And I, I'm not saying that the Christian life is to be one of resignation. It could sound like I'm saying, oh, since your ultimate hope can't be in earthly things, then you can't enjoy life. No, it's, I'm actually saying the opposite. As Christians, our hope should be so centered on being one with Christ forever through the resurrection, that all these other things, which can often consume our lives, should be like drops in the bucket to us. We can still enjoy them, but they don't have to consume us or dictate our lives. To whatever measure we prostitute our hope, we give our hearts and our lives follow. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses or just starting in verse 13, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ as his second coming when he comes back. So where is your hope? Because of the gospel, because of the resurrection, we should have abundant hope. We should guard our hope. Point two, because Christ is risen, we are to live in victory. After painting a picture of despair, if Christ were not raised, Paul gives a small glimpse of the implications of Christ's resurrection, and they are glorious. The implications are life with God and in God forever for those in Christ. And his rule over all things, including the destruction of his and our enemies. Verses 21 and 22 say, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam serves as the first representative for all of humanity because of Adam's disobedience. Through Adam, we, we were all born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law or to be made right with God. But praise God, we have a second representative, Christ. All those in Christ are made alive forever. When Paul says in Christ, that in Christ we shall be made alive, he's pointing to our union with Christ. That's what those two words mean, in Christ, our union with Christ. And this idea of union with Christ is one of the most significant ideas in the whole New Testament. Some say it summarizes Paul's whole theology, and I think that's fairly accurate. Phil Riken says, In being united to Christ, we receive not only Christ himself, but also his benefits. What is his becomes ours, for God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Because we're in Christ, what is his becomes ours. What is his? All things. But in this passage, of course, the resurrection is specifically in view. John Calvin comments about our union with Christ. He says, when the apostle Paul defines the gospel and the use of it, he says that we are called to be partakers 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be made one with him, and to dwell in him, and he in us, and that we be joined together in an inseparable bond. So if we are united to Christ by faith, we are in Christ. Then what is his becomes ours. The indestructible life of the resurrection, which is his, becomes ours. When verse 22 says that we shall all be made alive, it is referring to something much, much, much more than physical life. What Paul means by us being made alive is that we will not only have the fullness of God's Spirit within us, but also we'll no longer be subjected to sin, brokenness, and the futility of this world. Although we won't be God in the resurrection, we'll have the sort of life that Jesus has in his resurrection, a life that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Romans 11, 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, spirit who dwells in you. Verse 23, we're told that this life has an order. Christ the firstfruits, then it has come in those who belong to Christ. So Christ has obviously already been resurrected, but then all who belong to him will be bodily resurrected at his second coming. There's, I think, a fair amount of confusion, even in the church, about what happens after we die. So I want to take just a moment to to speak to that, and I'll probably be even more on that next week. Um, But I think some clarity is helpful here. For those in Christ, our souls immediately go to be with Christ in heaven. When Christ returns, all the bodies of those who died in Christ will be resurrected, and their souls will be reunited with their resurrected bodies, which will not be susceptible to corruption. And we will be with Christ forever with bodies on a renewed earth, an earth that will be like the Garden of Eden, but even far surpass the Garden of Eden, I think. Because a very common misconception is that our future, in our future existence, we will be disembodied forever. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, I think this is important because we don't really have categories for a disembodied existence. Because all we know is having a body, right? That's all we know. So besides being what the Bible teaches, it helps us to make sense and look forward to our resurrection after death. So the believer will have a future bodily resurrection, okay? Even though um, for a while, if we die before Christ returns, we're not immediately reunited with our body. We, we will be, and that's how we will live forever. So our future resurrected bodies are a key part of living in victory now, but also Christ's reign is key. Verses 24 and 25 say, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If we are assured of Christ's complete, total, and lasting victory, then struggle, trial, and defeat on this earth will be faced differently. If we are completely forgiven and know that he will make all things right, setbacks that we face on earth aren't the end. They're only temporary. 
even something so difficult as, as losing a, a loved one, if that loved one is in the Lord, and we are as well, that separation is only temporary. And it's in fact a very short time compared to the eternity that we would spend with, with God and with other loved ones with him. Um, I, I wrestle a little bit in presenting this point um, about our, our victory in, in Christ. Um, not because it's not true, but just because of the prosperity gospel, which says our best life is now. Um, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Our best life is to come. Our best life is the resurrected life. To say that we are to live in complete victory now, I'm not saying our best life in terms of circumstance is always now. To have the first fruits of the resurrection doesn't mean that that we won't have trials, sickness, cancer, pain, relational difficulties, death, and other things. We will have these things. But the resurrection assures us that such things are temporary and will pass away. They do not affect They do nothing to affect Christ's victory. Death will be no more. The more confident that we are in the resurrection, and the more assured that we are of his final and ultimate victory, the more steadfast we can be during the trials that will undoubtedly come. It doesn't mean our boat won't be rocked, but our boats will be held fast by a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, none other than Christ himself. Over the past year or so, one of my favorite hymns that I've enjoyed in private worship has been, um, Jesus, I my cross have taken. And one of the verses says, says, Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. I know that for some of us today, this idea of living in victory might seem impossible. And without doubt, we face very tough things in this world. Whether it's relational difficulty, even in your family, whether it's your own health struggles, um, death of a loved one, um, whatever the situation May be the same Savior who is our victor is also our faithful and sympathetic high priest. He is familiar with human weakness and suffering. He told us in John sixteen thirty three, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let us turn our eyes upon Jesus, and as the old hymn says, look full in his wonderful face. The things of the earth will go strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. The complete victory of of his resurrection gives us the confidence that all things will work for our good. So we can live in victory now as we hold fast to Christ, even as all things may seem defeat. So we've seen that because Christ is risen, we're to live in expectant hope. We've seen that we're to live in complete victory. Second one. Now we see that because Christ is risen, we are to live in purposeful holiness. Paul begins this last section with an allusion to people being baptized on behalf of the dead. What does that mean? Good question. Um, Honestly, what's in view isn't completely clear. Um, On the face of it, 
to be baptized on behalf of the dead would mean that uh, Corinthian Christians were baptized vicariously on behalf of someone who had already died seeking a spiritual benefit. Um, one solution would be to understand that Paul's key terms here, such as uh, baptism, what it means to be on behalf of or for, or the word dead, that those words have a medical, metaphorical meaning in some way, and so that, that, this, that this phrase would be interpreted differently than kind of how it, should be, how it would be taken on face value. And I think that is an option, but it's not a very good one. I think the best option in terms of what the, text, the original text says is to just as it seems. But then why would they be practicing this? Why would they be baptizing people on behalf of the dead? It's worth noting that Paul does not cha- challenge the practice. That's interesting. Um, since he doesn't, it seems best to infer that the, the Corinthians must not have done bab- baptisms on behalf of the dead because they thought it could play a role in saving the dead. Um, this would have been a major error that Paul certainly would have corrected. It seems that the Corinthians must have feared some spiritual loss for believers who had not been baptized before death and wanted to do something about it. So while we might not have as much clarity that we'd like to have as we'd like to have on this phrase, we can still see how it serves the context of Paul's argument. Paul's argument is for the bodily resurrection of believers. He's basically asking them, if you don't believe in a bodily resurrection, why are you doing something that you think would benefit somebody who's already died? There's no bodily resurrection. They're dead, and they're dead forever. It doesn't matter. You can't benefit them in any way. So it wouldn't matter if there's a resurrection. So it wouldn't matter if there is no resurrection. Sorry. This also goes along with the context of the rest of the paragraph. Paul is basically asking, if there is no resurrection, why would I expose myself to constant danger for the sake of the gospel? It would make no sense for me or anyone else to do this. If there is no resurrection, he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is saying that, the, that if there is no resurrection, there is also no judgment after we die. So live it up now, right? And don't worry about what could come after death. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was a phrase that was known in the culture at that time, perhaps even used by some of the Corinthians in the church. But there is a future resurrection and a future judgment. So that affects in every way how we live now. If there is no resurrection, again, Paul says, why not live in a drunken stupor and go on sinning? He says, those who do so have no knowledge of God. Again, what we believe about the future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. If there is no resurrection, how is there any purpose to life? If there is a resurrection, our lives are filled with purpose. We are called to live in purposeful holiness. I think sometimes this can also work in another way, though. I think there are some who have an inkling of the truth of the resurrection. They think it could be true or they want it to be true. But they know that if the resurrection is true, it would mean that they can't do whatever they want. They would be under Christ's subjection. They would need to live for him. Sometimes, even as Christians, we want to do whatever we want more than we want Christ. If that's the case, we're functionally denying the resurrection. 
But going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, after he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If our minds are set on the future grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's his return, when we will be resurrected, we are called to live now in purposeful holiness. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean to live in purposeful holiness when you're by yourself? What does it mean when you're at work? What does it mean to live in purposeful holiness when you're at home with your family, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're at church even? Can our lives be described as purposefully holy? That's the goal for us because of the resurrection. So we've seen in this passage today that because Christ is risen, we're to live in expectant hope, complete victory, and purposeful holiness. What we believe about the future, again, completely controls how we are experiencing our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. What do you believe about the future? Do you believe in a future bodily resurrection because of Christ's resurrection? How does your life show right now that you, how does your life right now show what you believe about the future? Does it display hopefulness, victory, and purpose? That opening illustration regarding the two women um, working on the assembly line, and one of them giving 30,000 at the end of the year, the other one giving 30 million at the end of the year. Um, either of those amounts are nothing compared with our inheritance in Christ, right? If we believe that He's the creator and sustainer of all things, everything is His. And if we are united to Him by faith, Everything that is his, including his resurrection, he shares with us. So 30 million is nothing at all compared to the inheritance that he will share with us through the, the resurrection. So is that, is that your hope? Um, I hope it is. And I hope that um, we are affected daily by our hope in the resurrection Let's pray. Amen. What a glorious day it will be when he returns. Let's look forward to that with the hope of the resurrection. Not only will that day he returns be glorious, but our future life with him forever in the resurrection will be glorious. Of that future life, it says this in Revelation 22, starting verse 3. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Our hope is glorious. Draw near to the Lord with faith in the resurrection. And go out and live a life of hope in the midst of a world that needs to know of the hope of the resurrection. You are sent.